and welcome to 20 Minutes In, the film podcast in which we look at the first 20 minutes of movies, great and terrible, to look at how they establish the plot, characters and themes important to the rest of the film. Uh, as ever, I'm Robert Beams and I'm joined by... Tom Oliver, hello. <laughs> hello Tom, how are you? <laughs> hello, hello Rob, how are you doing? Yes, good, thank you. So so we, we mentioned, I think, on our very first episode, uh, the Pixels episode, I think, that we were going to look at Paul Thomas Hansen's The Master. Yes. And, and finally we, that day has come. Finally that day has come. We, we've, we, keep, we kept putting it back for whatever reason, and, and we've, we're there now. We've got there. We uh, finally got there. I think the further we get away from Pixels, the less and less uh, it deserves our mention in every subsequent podcast. So that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> It's good to be slowly getting away from it. Um, But yes, no, this is one we've kind of wanted for a while, so I'm really happy we're doing it. Yeah, I watched the first 20 minutes of uh, of Pixels. Of Pixels, why did I say that again? Of The Master. (laughs) We were so close. (laughs) I watched the first 20 minutes of The Master uh, on a bit of a loop this morning. Uh, so, yes. So I've, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. Did you, uh, did mm. you rewatch the the entire movie, or are you, you? Uh, I didn't re. I, I so I've seen the film um, quite a few times now. Yeah, me too. Um, and uh, so I uh, watched the first, just the first twenty minutes uh, as prep. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of the, the way we always do this podcast is um, whether, like, I feel it's not necessarily. Um, like we've tend to do done films that we know quite well. I didn't really have much frame of reference for Only Yesterday, the one that we did last time. Yeah. So watching the first twenty minutes was really interesting, discussing where it could go because obviously you'd seen it, so we had sort of um, different points of reference for it. Um, but I know that I'd say I know this film pretty well. So watching the first twenty minutes, it just sort of gave me a, a look into where uh, the film eventually heads without actually seeing that yeah um so essentially just trying to recall it which i think is really interesting because you know the i think the strongest things in any film um as the plot sort of develops are the ones that stay with you so the ones that hopefully stay with me in this film uh will kind of tie in hopefully to where it sets off yeah and i think it's uh it's interesting with this with this film because i think one thing for the for the dear listener they should know is that uh, unlike your your aforementioned pixels or only yesterday, which which you hadn't seen before, um, mm. this is this is a film by um, Paul Thomas Anderson, who is one I know for both of us. He's he's maybe yeah. top five, right? He's a oh, genuinely one of, our... one of my like heroes in yeah. life as well as favorite filmmakers. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 one of our very top guys. I mean, if yeah. you if you ask me, best living filmmaker, he's he's probably my number one, and yeah, best of I'd all so. best of all time, he's top five for me. Yeah, I think so. So, so it's, it's hard to fault yeah. anything he does personally or professionally. Like he's good. I mean, so there are sort of um, uh, even even to list weak points, they fit. They still feel like honorable efforts you know there are criticisms i could level against magnolia that i'm sure he himself has put against that film in recent years sort of Mm. now that he's years after the fact of making it but even those still feel like uh genuine kind of attempts at i don't know something kind of human and something like just strong bodies of work all around you know there's not like anything that feels dishonest or um out of touch in some kind of ego maniacal kind of way i think for um, me because punch drunk love is my favorite film of all time and i've probably said yes. that on this podcast before i've said it all over the place many times yeah and um 
I think for me, his his body of work is his pre-Punch Drunk Love work and his post-Punch Drunk Love work, because even though there are themes yeah. that run through all of them and things about the style of them that, that are kind of consistent across those those different films, I think after Magnolia, which which I think he has subsequently made, I think on a Mark Maron podcast, listen to him mm. on, where he talked about how it was too long. And, yeah. and I would agree with that. I, I love Magnolia, but but for me, it's a bit baggier than a lot of his films uh, have been subsequently. I think Punch Drunk Love was when he really refined his style and really yes. kind of really pinned down what then subsequently in There'll Be Blood, in The Master, kind of everything going on since has uh, has has been a lot more uh, streamlined and refined. I think. I think a lot mm. of the excesses end up getting. Um, thrown in the bin you know yeah he, he, no, managed, he loses right. his darlings as they say yeah I think. I think there's a definite shift sort of uh from punch drunk love onwards where he just um kind of knows exactly where he's going and that gives him the confidence to kind of play around with certain things and uh i mean i've sort of contended for ages that there will be blood um is my favorite of his uh simply for the fact that it is uh you know at heart a sort of uh, i guess a period drama about uh this about daniel plainview who's mining for oil but he plays with elements of horror like in the score but also elements of genuine comedy like the performance is unquestionably like really funny in certain places Mm -hmm. and i think that's uh not a failing of the film that it's sort of a tonally all over the place i think it shows real control and that i would say for kind of most of uh, the stuff from Punch Drunk Love onwards, the kind of golden age of Anderson. Yeah, right. absolutely. Uh, I think I think that uh, penchant for for a kind of uh, <laughs> d- dark comedy, you know, without it being. Because yeah. I often say this, and it sounds like pretentious, kind of wankery to say this, but I I kind of don't like comedies in quotes but yeah. all of my favorite films are funny like they have kind of comedic elements or yeah. uh, you, you know and, and and i i think that's very true of um of paul thomas hansen's movies because none of them are out and out kind of this year's must see comedy <laughs> yeah <laughs> laugh a second uh like will ferrell movie but they mm. they they have a um a comedy that comes in the same way Coen Brothers movies are funny like or, yes, or, or yeah. even Wes Anderson films which I think are straddle that line of being drama comedies rather than just being yeah. all out comedies where the, the humour comes from uh, ticks in the way you know human mannerisms or or or, or just the, the comedy comes from character beats uh, and, mm. and a little bits of observational work with people or, or repeated strange idiosyncratic phrases that people use or something like that I, I, I think mm. that it's fits more into that kind of uh, end of comedy which is yeah where i enjoy it's it, i guess uh, not to to get too deep into sort of like uh comedic theory of which i have basically no knowledge but as i understand it there is that kind of rule of thumb that comedy works best when it's relief like that sense of relief um and obviously in the framework uh, obviously genre frameworks are difficult to kind of put your finger on especially in his work but uh generally in any like the same goes for coen brothers but um the sort of counterpoint of funny elements and sort of pulling focus to funny elements makes it even funnier in a way so obviously mm. you go into a comedy expecting to laugh and so you're immediately set up for failure if you're making yep. an out and out comedy because you have to make it funny 
and so that's a difficult trick to i think yeah off. i think that's it because there are obviously out and out comedies that i love uh they're just few and far between and i think it's because yeah. comedy lives and dies on whether it's making you laugh at that point in time yeah if, if, if 10 minutes goes by and nothing's funny then then the, the comedy's really in trouble whereas if, yeah. you, if you don't laugh for half an hour of fargo you know you're still watching like a really good yeah uh, exactly. you know a, a crime thriller and then something will pop up and tickle you in the way that steve buscemi delivers his line or, or whatever or, yeah, yeah. Or, or some kind of like a say idiosyncratic little character thing will make you laugh it's not having to kind of stand up on that on its own and i think uh, i think that's one of the reasons that um beyond the masterful filmmaking which we'll go into as we start to talk about yeah. the master uh, that Paul Tom Sanson's nice. films kind of check those boxes because yeah. you, you have these little humorous beats in there and I think that's what separates um, the films I really like from the the kind of Bellatar type stuff in this right, world yeah. because I think that um, it, it's sort of Nolan syndrome in a way uh, yes. where I where, was just thinking yeah, that, yeah. where <laughs> It's probably the only time Bella Tarkas for Nolan have been directly compared. But I think I think they, they come from a similar place where this kind of thing of no, I'm doing something serious. And I, yeah. I think that that um if you're doing something that's totally silly and totally totally funny or totally serious and has no comedy at all, both yeah. of those are extremes that are kind of away from real life. And I think yes. that real life is full of people who you know people make jokes to each other you know like our relationship yeah. as mates we're often trying to make each other laugh or yes or you know or finding other people things that they've done funny or, or whatever and i think yeah. i think that when you make a film that just completely takes comedy out of it I, for me anyway you kind of take life out of it you kind of take yeah. real warmth or or anything kind of real from it for me yeah i would say it's a sort of sub uh, uh note to that point is that i think in bellatar's uh well in christopher nolan's case he's basically incapable of doing funny like i yeah. i get the feeling there's times in his films when he's tried and it lands with a pretty dull thud i think bellatar flat out refuses to make anyone enjoy life on any <laughs> measure possible like yeah. you know you do not make a seven and a half hour film which fe- uh, features a 45 minute cat torturing sequence for the you know, with the intention yeah. of counterpointing with you know a good yuck up yeah <laughs> like it's like uh yeah. Yeah, yeah i mean that's fairly irrelevant but um yeah it's 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 a, a fun digression though yeah uh, sure. maybe maybe we'll do the first 20 minutes of a bellatar movie at some point which will probably just yeah. be one uh black and white kind of z- slow zoom into a teacup yeah. or something yeah, yeah. Be the having whole 20 seen minutes, saint tango there yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> having seen um saint tango the aforementioned seven and a half hour uh, opus i can guarantee that it is just a single i'm pretty sure it's a single panning shot of a village for 20 minutes yeah and that's not an exaggeration i'm not embellishing like his extent of kind of tedium that is genuinely the opening shot i've i've um, only seen Turin horse and i feel like the first 20 minutes of that is just a track shot of a farmer pulling along a horse yeah i'm fairly sure yeah. that's the first 20 minutes of Turin horse doesn't play well uh opening night of the odeon <laughs> <laughs> very true very true so 
let's get let's go i feel like if we sure. were a proper podcast this would be when after the introduction a, a little musical sting would come in for, to introduce yeah. the actual matter at yeah hand. uh maybe we'll work on that the, if, if someone was going to do 20 minutes in on 20 minutes in where they examine the first 20 minutes of each of our podcasts i think they wouldn't have much indication of where we're going to end up going because uh, we do tend to preamble which i yeah. like and you like but i don't know how other people feel about it yeah let us know uh in any case let's, <laughs> let's uh let's let us begin so i think i think first things first i'm gonna just go over dryly boringly with fewer sides the literal yeah. plot of the first 20 minutes of this movie like i've written cool. it down it's relatively it's like half a page there's quite a lot of kind of economy at play here because quite a, a fair amount's actually established um and a fair sure. amount of stuff actually happens but it's all done really it's not really spelled out and it's all kind of shown rather than told um mm. so basically joaquin phoenix he's in the navy we know from some stuff we hear in the background kind of radio stuff that it's the end of the war in the pacific that that kind of the war's coming to an end world war Two. Mm. um he's there's bits of him killing time with sailors on a beach where lots of stuff to do with his character which we'll talk about in more detail even more detail later it starts mm-hmm. to be established um you see that um the, i guess it's the sailors celebrating the the end of the war um him and a bunch of other guys they go and they break into i think the bottom of like a shell casing of a bomb and he drains mm. off some stuff to make moonshine some kind of strong alcohol from the what comes off the bomb so right. that kind of establishes this ongoing thing of hey this guy knows how to make uh disgusting very strong alcohol um yes. he's discharged from the war i think um i wasn't sure whether it's all of the sailors after the war are given this same speech about the um, what's next and, and going back into the world or whether he'd specifically been sent to a kind of hospital to be analysed for kind of, I, I guess PTSD wasn't around then as a, as a diagnosis, mm. but for that kind of trauma and and, uh, and stuff that, that, that he's clearly, um, go, you know, going under after the war. So he goes to this hospital, he talks to a couple of psychologists, uh, doesn't really have a lot of time for them, doesn't really take it very seriously um he ends up working in a uh we, we kind of cut to him working in a department store where he's a photographer uh those brilliant recreations of old photographs that we see oh god yeah amazing yeah. great anyway um then uh yeah he's he's kind of getting with this model who works at the department store they seem to have a kind of sexual frisson but then they go for this uh date and he's such a kind of alcoholic and, and a, a wreck that he just falls asleep and then the next i don't know if it's the next day or the next thing we we see is um maybe because of this pent-up frustration or be, or, or the, just the direction his life's going in because we don't know the time really on this uh mm. he he explodes at a customer in the in the store one of these uh, photography sort of customers um he starts kind of getting physical violent with him uh we see that this character a few times that, that is is potentially violent or, or can explode into violence uh like the best joaquin phoenix characters he's kind of always on the edge of yeah <laughs> of being potentially um, quite dangerous being someone yeah. Up, yeah um which we see a few times later in the film although not in the first 20 minutes beyond this um mm. After leaving the department store, we get the sense because we see him working on a farm that he's then just kind of the only jobs he can keep down are kind of, I suppose, low paid agricultural work, just going from probably from farm to farm. Uh, That's the impression I got. We only see him on one farm, but it it would seem to fit that that's what he's doing, working with kind of low paid immigrant workers, just kind of working on farms. Um, Mm. He's still making the moonshine. Uh, He's sitting around one night with a guy who he um, is kind of drinking the moonshine with. He's made. Uh, We hear him tell 
tell this guy that um, that he reminds him of his father, and then next we see people mm. are accusing him of having deliberately poisoned this guy. So mm. it's kind of left ambiguous. Did he? Did this guy die accidentally because of some bad moonshine, or mm. is some repressed thing to do with his father a, a reason that he actually deliberately killed this guy? But whatever yeah, happens, yeah. Um, whatever the case, I mean, we I don't we get we don't get to the bottom of that in the movie. That's just a kind of ambiguous hanging thing. But whatever happens, the the people uh, he goes to run away because they're accusing him of killing this dude um mm. or poisoning this dude anyway uh then so he runs away and then next we see him he is uh there's that great tracking shot of him running away with yes. rigor with the breath yeah. and everything uh with his kind of panting as he's trying to get away from these guys who are chasing after him and the kind of desperation of that moment and the score as always is just Mwah! but we'll come on to yeah later beautiful um and then at the end of the 20 minutes, pretty much, and it's funny, isn't it? Like, I don't even see it's coincidental. I feel like we're on something with this 20 minutes malarkey because I think so, they yeah. always just 20 minutes, but the good films, it kind of hits its groove. Everything's been established. Yep. And the last shot of, of this first 20 minutes, he's walking down this promenade in the dark. Um, there's a party boat going on, the kind of glow of people on the ship. Uh, and he he kind of looks over there, and it's our first shot. It's it's uh, it's not a close up. It's kind of an establishing shot, but it's our first glimpse of the titular master of Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, which mm. is great for us. It's like yes, perfect. <laughs> that, it was so great, yeah. <laughs> and so you kind of basically you have this first twenty minutes where you you establish a bit about the history and psychology of his character. And then mm. after that 20 minutes, he gets bumped into uh, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character and the rest of the film is about that relationship. Yes. So it's so, yeah. it's so clean. It's, it's so like, well yeah. done. No, nothing. There's very little dialogue in this first 20 minutes. There's, there's not yeah. really any conversations in this first 20 minutes, aside from a couple of very um, stilted kind of call and response interviews with psychologists, which are mm. mirrored later in the film with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, so so yeah that's 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 where we are 20 minutes in what was your first feeling on that in terms of plot or uh yeah this kind of outline well i kind of um so i i watched it and i made a couple notes and there was a couple uh i mean i've seen this film like a handful of times and the these were just kind of my very initial thoughts which led me to think about the film overall a bit uh, like as with all of his films, you always uncover like another layer when you've seen it a su- subsequent time. Um, and so these were just my initial thoughts. It occurred to me that uh, if like talking strictly divisions, um, the very first ten minutes are all the military kind of stuff, and then the following ten minutes it's re-entering society. Mm. So there's, uh, I think I, I've actually read in an interview or heard in an interview with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, and I can't remember where, which is really bad, but he said he's very, and he's speaking explicitly about this film, is he's very aware of like um the te- the 20 minute mark generally like he says that's where uh things really have to start moving and i mean you don't really get the sense with this film that it cares much about moving things along but it is moving things along in a very kind of relaxed sort of way there's no sense of uh desperately begging you to stay with it or trying to kind of um foreshadow plot points to come it's kind of moving but at its own pace it's establishing a pace which it ultimately is actually quite uh like sturdy like it's not yeah really really slow and kind of dreary and it's not like 
Fast and the Furious straight to the action stuff. It feels like it's, it's it's kind of deceptive, right? Like it feels yeah. like like it's a, it's an active cinematic sleight of hand is taking place because it feels yeah. like a very slight kind of um, I don't know if ambling sounds negative. I certainly don't mean it negatively, but but sort of a no, totally, it's a, yeah. it's a very slight movie that is like you say feels like it's kind of being given room to breathe. Feels like it's going at its own pace. Feels relatively kind of plot light, and that we're just sort of yeah. enjoying this character and moments in this character's life. But at the same time, when you break it down, as you've just said, ten minutes mm. military, ten minutes him going back into society. That total twenty minutes, bang! We've now established the character, and now we're on the road. Like it, yeah. it actually is very efficient at what it's doing. Even while yes. feeling like a very very light touch. Yeah, I think what's um, I mean, my sense of it is that um, there he has got uh, PT, as I shall now refer to him because it's quicker than his full name. But um, he's got a grasp on what he where he wants to go. I feel like he's got a real grasp on where he's going to take these uh, this central character of Freddy, Whacking Phoenix's character. Um, but he's the the pacing the editing it's fragmented and kind of um very drifty like it feels very drifty in the same way that the character is is that the character's mind is very kind of like uh scattershot and sort of all over the place but he's also kind of a drifter so it it does through it employs kind of the um formal stuff in a way that gives a sense of that kind of personality that um he's kind of just out of time out of space um there's no real sense of firm like i know where i'm going now sort of thing it's like i'm back from the war and nothing really makes a lot of sense and i'm trying to sort of reconnect with things um i may may be reading that too deeply but i do really feel like there's a connection between uh who this character is and how the film um sort of employs uh those things like editing to sort of um show that character because ultimately the film is a character study like it isn't um sort of driving home plot um but two really interesting things occurred to me just in those first 20 minutes is so there i read a story that the the scene when he's speaking to i guess the counselor and he's saying things about crying spells and all that stuff um that scene is actually taken um pretty much verbatim from a John Huston documentary about uh, soldiers coming home from the war which he was a really strong influence on the film uh, PT has said and the it's pretty much word for word in the documentary the John Huston documentary the soldier is actually seen very kind of feeble he kind of like breaks down crying in this interview and um he's saying the same things in the master version it's uh, he's he's a lot more kind of divide, um defiant mm. and standoffish but there is a sense of the kind of you know demons that kind of haunt him and that's a really fascinating kind of play and something else that never occurred to me but makes more and more sense when you know the film as a whole is um when he goes into the department store and he starts sort of uh, messing around with that model woman it really strongly felt to me that that was all in his head like that was a kind of fantasy because there are moments later on in the film where it very much see where it becomes very very subjective like there's a scene much later in the film when he's watching um the master sort of having a song and dance with a load of um his followers i guess mm. And then it cuts to uh, all the women just completely naked, and you realise that's actually um, 
Joaquin Phoenix's perspective like he's just imagining this and then there's a scene later on when uh, he's in a cinema and someone just brings a phone to him and it's um the master on the other end of a phone this is kind of after he's run away yeah. and he just picks up his phone and it m- kind of made me realize that um it made sense that this uh woman was not because it seems in a way like given how he is like very like twitchy nervy always on the edge of being kind of uh, you know kind of unstable that um it didn't it never quite landed with me that um a woman would find him so immediately appealing and the way that those scenes play out with him is it's very much she's sort of giving him what he wants in the sense that a kind of fantasy would. Like, I would imagine that he's kind of spied this model woman and then developed this kind of fantasy and then that kind of uh, falls apart when he gets in a fight mm. with this guy and then he just goes on the run again. And I think that ties into themes later on with, um, you know, the pain he feels and all these things. Anyway, that's a long ramble. Yeah, about, I, I think that's uh, an interesting point. I hadn't, I hadn't drawn that yeah. con- uh, conclusion. I think for me, the way that that scene worked with the woman is that there's nothing um how do I put this there's nothing outwardly obviously wrong with him he is kind of twitchy and yeah uh, but that he that he has a period after he leaves the army or the navy or whatever where he mm. is seemingly okay to the outside world he's seemingly all right he's got this job yeah. and things are kind of quote unquote normal and mm. then whatever happens before he kind of uh, freaks out and starts beating up the guy is that moment where it's like, no, life isn't going to be like that for him. Like he has yeah. these, he has these issues to do with, um, you know, his, his past prior to the army, his time in the army, mm. the war um, that mean that at some point, these things always are going to uh, kind of fuck up for him or he's going to fuck them up and then he's going to have to run and, and move on to the next thing. So I kind of yeah. saw that as the, the kind of calm before the storm on, on another mm. episode if you like yeah it's interesting um yeah i mean it's it's something that occurred to me as well uh and this is getting slightly away from that point but uh again just to do with the way that um just the film is shot and put together the first time i saw the film i never noticed that um philip seymour hoffman was on the boat like you pass the boat and it Mm. cuts away but like i can't remember i mean i saw it the first time i saw it i saw it in 70 millimeter so i'm kind of surprised with that level of definition that i didn't catch that it was actually philip seymour hoffman on the boat but i i i really feel like it's again it's the film is not pulling focus on things it's not um explicitly giving you all the pieces to follow along it's kind of it, it feels a lot more real in the sense that there is stuff going on that kind of this character doesn't notice, you know, like we don't always pick up on the things that we need to know straight away. And um, I think it's very bold for him to do sort of get in uh, Freddie's head that way and show things in that way. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, I, yeah. I don't know if I'm seeing too much in it, but um, no, that was definitely my impression from this. I think view. you're right. I think what happens if you have a close up there of Philip Seymour Hoffman, you make it seem that, that Freddie's gone onto the boat because he's intrigued by this guy or something. Mm. But Freddie goes onto the boat because he's got nowhere really to be and there's alcohol on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. That seems to yeah, be why he's exactly. actually on the boat. I mean, I think there's yeah. a... I don't know if it even goes as far as being a metaphorical, but I think there's a kind of thematic thing of, of uh, when this guy has... Um, trouble sort of returning to the sea for whatever reason yeah like uh, the, the film begins with water and uh and i don't know if that's just a visual, visual signifier as well later on that he um 
when 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 he then is finding civilian life hard why he goes onto a boat might just simply mm. be because it's kind of like fitting in again with uh military life where things are a bit easier because well I, and i'm not saying that by the way to say like it's easy being in the military but for sure. the point of view of he's used to a certain sort of maybe uh rules and direction and maybe being yeah. told what to do and then find civilian life harder and i think that's part of the appeal and this is where the film starts to be about the kind of um, pound store Scientology, uh, kind of off-brand Scientology mm. version, is it's this sort of thing because all of these 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 cults and 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 things I think started off in that post-war period, didn't they? And I mm. I think part of what the film is maybe suggesting or exploring is that he has um, he's left that very easy to understand day-to-day life and he's struggling to find out what his life can be and he doesn't have that direction he doesn't have the answers and then he finds that with somebody who um is able to very charismatically present those answers and present that uh kind of structure again and and be quite paternalistic like the thing with freddie from the first 20 minutes is he doesn't seem to really actually like authority figures and he butts up against them and he doesn't take like the army psychologist seriously but the thing that philip seymour hoffman has on them is that those previous conversations are very clinical and very kind of top down and very them demanding things of him whereas the conversation with philip seymour hoffman even though he has the power they're they're more kind of eye to eye aren't they they're more kind of yes between equals, yeah. you know, which I mm. think is what his character maybe finds um, more appealing about that in a way that he didn't with the therapy in the more rigid sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's uh, there is like that scene with the psychologist. He, he basically, uh, Wacking Phoenix at points is just sort of saying, "Well, why do you need to know this? Why do you need to know that?" kind of thing. And then later, when they the scene which is uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Wacking Phoenix like face to face and they're doing the whole don't blink thing which for my money is the best scene in the whole film like it's absolutely incredible how just from one long sort of it's just a locked off close up on Whacking Phoenix and then reverse shot on um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and it, that whole scene is just those two shots and just the amount of kind of drama that they go through and like it's just incredible like the two of them playing off each other like amazingly well this is a um, sorry I was gonna say this is a good moment for me to mention Joaquin Phoenix physical transformation into this character is one of the best I've ever seen from an actor because so often you get the kind of the approach where it's like they've got a lot of props like oh Daniel Day-Lewis is doing uh, like a different voice and he's got a hat on and he's got a beard you know and maybe a prosthetic or something there's all these all these elements this is very much a physical transformation that he's undergone just just from the way he's holding himself the way he's kind of scrunching up his face on one side you know like you're getting these close-ups of him and Joaquin Phoenix you know he's he's a you know he's a handsome actor man you know but he's playing this guy who genuinely looks like a bit of a skeezy messed up uh you know Mm. average joe who's just left the navy and he looks like that without you know an eye patch or anything (laughs) i mean they're not like like giving him any uh anything kind of a crutch in that respect to kind of lean on he's doing it all very very, uh himself physically i think and i think it's really amazing performance from him it's very easy for kind of like the quote-unquote transformative performance to become like a reason for an actor to indulge because obviously all actors hate playing themselves but ultimately their strongest roles are always playing you know elements of themselves and so i think there is a tendency towards vanity um performance where you 
just remove yourself and that kind of gives you confidence like you say it's a crutch because you are using sort of certain things to bolster a performance um no i mean polishing a turd is probably quite harsh i can't think of explicit examples i think in daniel day lewis case he he brings the props himself like he would just say i'm doing this voice i'm wearing this i'm doing this i'm gonna i'm doing this voice i'm doing this voice Um, now I'm doing this voice and I shall be doing it for the rest of the shoot. Like he kind of, he just knows how to do that kind of, that's, that's his trade really. Like, um, rarely does he ever play just like, uh, you know, just his voice. Like he just uses everything, I think. And I think Joaquin Phoenix very much the same way, but it is an underhanded thing where it's not like he has like war scars on him or like kind of, you know, a big burn on his back from like napalm or something. It's like, it's all just the kind of very contorted, very sort of mangled, messed up. Um, the way he just holds himself yeah. is, is kind of all there. Because there's that whole thing as well, and I forgot to mention this, is um, that the film doesn't show the war at any point. Like, it's definitely not what you'd call like a war film or a war mm. drama. Like, it's not really even a military kind of like... There's not really a military theme. I think the military stuff is like a jumping point for like dealing with trauma and connecting with people who help you kind of deal with that kind of stuff. I would argue as well that it's not really a Scientology kind of uh drama overtly. No, it isn't. Like at all. um I, I really like the whole I think the hook I remember it being when it came out was, you know, the sort of bystander hook was like, oh, the Scientology. It's like, it talks about, it's a film about Scientology and he's playing kind of an L. Ron Hubbard type of character. And it's like, I really never felt that throughout the whole film. Like, I didn't feel like it was a condemnation of uh, cults or Scientology. It felt very much just about the two of them. I think it still really is just the two of them and the the need they have for the sort of uh for each other absolutely absolutely i think when i first saw it and i i really enjoyed it when i first saw it and i think i was slightly disappointed though on the grounds that i was expecting something more overtly about that and it wasn't yeah and i think that Mm. coming away and engaging with the film in its own terms you're exactly right it isn't um but that Mm. said um, I've seen in the last few years a few documentaries on Scientology and the the cult kind of pre- presented in the film. Um, there's a lot of really good attention to detail that very closely mirrors a lot of the practices and things that do go on in Scientology. Yes. So, it, yeah. so it's very, I, I, I mean, I agree completely. It isn't really about that, but it, it's yeah. extremely uh, well observed in the same way that Phantom Thread is not about you know the fashion industry necessarily yeah. all there will be blood is yeah, not about, about oil, oil. And but so, all of the yeah. way that these things are done has been very well researched and observed and, and presented. yeah absolutely yeah. and i think that really gives uh, i think that is what gives uh, pt the confidence to um go sort of deeper with that stuff is he has a grasp on the peripheral world that he's going to create and so he can really focus on um these characters because more much more so than there will be blood um like the master i mean there will be blood is definitely a character study but there is more of a sense of classical of grand theme going, going on. on there as well this whole thing yeah. about the, the, the isn't it the end quote in the movies like when the church and and uh Oh, the church and business or oil meet or something there'll be blood yeah Isn't that the quote yeah because the because there's this whole titanic struggle between him representing 
oil and business colliding with the yes. guy who represents the church and what's yeah. happening in early 20th century America between these two opposing forces. And yeah, 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 definitely. And I think that's dealt with more. I mean, I feel like after I get the sense that after dealing with, you know, grasping with kind of period drama and really finding like a strong voice with There Will Be Blood, he was able to go much more into the kind of uh, like I, I really feel and this may be a bit of a reach, but I really feel like The Master is like a romantic film, maybe not quite as romantic mm. as something like Punch Drunk Love or even Phantom Thread. But um, as with pretty much all of his films, there is a central kind of relationship, yep. which is basically what he cares about. You know, that's the thing he's like telling the story about. And it is between um, obviously Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman, who both have like a need for each other and what each other represents. And they bicker and they fight and then they make up. And But there there is like an understanding between them that they don't seem to get from anyone else, you know. Mm. Um, which is really, I, I mean, I, I would just say now, like I've, like I said before, is um, there will be blood has long been my favourite of his. But I, the more and more I watch the master, the, the higher and higher it gets yeah. on my favourite of his. And I actually did another podcast with my other podcast, which was um, favourite top five movies of the twenty first century, and I actually placed this at number one over there will be blood because I really feel like it's. A, a story that I mean it's the type of film that I don't think could have been done in any other decade like it feels like the style of it and the story approach feels very decade um, specific and obviously dealing with kind of mental trauma and how people deal with that and you know because obviously I don't feel like at least maybe not now but maybe like 20 or so years ago no one went to something like Scientology with ill intentions you know everyone went in saying that hoping that it would make them better and everything else that comes with that all the kind of corruption and the horrible uh, sort of human rights violations they all come sort of after the fact um, and I, I really don't feel like there's a kind of spiteful attitude in this film towards um, that desire to get well and sort of find your place and you know like figure out a purpose no not at all i mean um, the the cult leader uh character is is very humanely drawn you know i mean there are things yeah. that happen in it that um don't cast him or or the or his kind of organization particularly great light um but the, but the, it all seems to there's a humanity to the character and there's a warmth to it and you can understand why joaquin phoenix character is drawn to his orbit you know and what he finds yeah. appealing about it i think just to go back because we're we're spreading out more into the movie yeah in sorry general, i went sort of off, off piste <laughs> a little bit <laughs> i think like go back into the the first sort of 20 minutes of the film i think sure. like um what would you say we learn about joaquin phoenix character that's sort of because i'll, I'll say like i've made a few notes and i'll just see what you, you sort of add to this we we find we see from the beginning that he's fairly impulsive character um, when he uh, usually with sexual things as well, he's quite yeah. sexually impulsive. He's definitely kind of got sec he's sexually obsessed or has some kind of sexual hang-ups, and he's very impulsive. Mm. And we see this a few times in the war scenes where he's kind of uh, uh, dry humping the sand lady yeah. and all this. It always that always makes me laugh. Like really, it's a really uncomfortable thing that he's like yeah playing playing with it, and they're kind of like ah, but then, and then it he goes carries on, on. yeah, so yeah. Long. and that and that it's brings latest. yeah exactly, and that brings on to another thing, which is no social skills really, like like no yeah. no inhibitions. 
which are also yeah. leads to him kind of having no social skills. Like he just kind of he he's all just uh, you know rampaging id really, isn't he? And just does kind of what yes. he wants. He's, yeah. We see loads of indications in the film that he uh, has tr- has problems to do with alcohol. That he's always drinking. Mm. Like even when he's um, getting those coconuts and stuff, he's like tipping a can of beer into it and then drinking it. Yeah, like, he's always drinking. Yeah. Um, See, that 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 he can he's prone to explode into violence as we see in that scene with the guy mm. at the shop that he doesn't really have that respect for traditional authority figures or for any particular interest in in institutions in in the traditional sense i, I feel yeah. like we get that that's what i sort of observe from the first 20 minutes from that character which it goes again with <laughs> without saying is a lot more than we got about the adam Sandler character in pixels in 20 minutes <laughs> which i think boiled down to uh he he used to like video games but he doesn't play them now <laughs> yeah man that film's never gonna leave us that's the benchmark it's, from which all pretty much the benchmark. all our future critiques yeah. will be measured um yeah, yeah no i 100 percent agree with that um it's a very id kind of introduction he is like he is for like lack of a better word he's just very animal like it's very animal instincts um uh, it's just base level kind of sex and booze um it's compulsions you know yeah. and that's and you're kind of wondering like that essentially i feel like the first 20 minutes tells you that that takes him kind of nowhere you know like as it would is that he just go it goes from these moments to moments none of them really threaded together you know one minute you're in a department store the next you're just cutting cabbage in a field and it's uh, you know it's essentially the question it poses is what do you do after uh you know you've experienced this trauma and you already have stuff going on in like in the background of your life anyway like where where are you gonna what are you gonna do now like your purpose before was war and fighting a war like what do you do now that you're sort of cut adrift and you have to go out and figure things out you know that's essentially what i feel those first 20 minutes sets up is like you know what will this character do um and it feels weird talking about this film in sort of strictly narrative terms like it's not an aaron sorkin kind of version where it's you know kind of plot points are really marshaled and really kind of like telegraphed it's like so it feels so just kind of like i said before drifty like i can't yeah, seem to get away from but that it's, word but that's what's but interesting the... because as i said before it's it it has it gives the impression of not having that sort of structure or that clearer yeah. plot and i think that's deceptive i think that's sleight of handwork because as mm. you say it isn't an aaron sorkin i mean the first line of dialogue in the film is to do with um is a joke to do with how you get rid of crabs i think he says yeah. you know how to get rid of crabs and he makes that ridiculous joke about shaving, about shaving off your, your testicles, testicles yeah. and then but yeah. setting light to the other one and then stabbing yourself with an ice pick or something yeah. and that's the beginning line and then uh the the all of the dialogue following that directly is very fleeting and mostly him just mm. saying that looks like a pussy that looks like a penis you know things like that yeah. so it isn't like Aaron Sorkin <laughs> going at yeah, all yeah. but 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 would, the uh, but it's yeah. very much uh, kind of show don't tell isn't it like like yes. there's a lot of character stuff going on there are lots of story beats being set up there are themes being established that later get very clearly echoed like we see mm. these interviews with the psychologists and then later we see several times the ones with philip seymour hoffman which yeah. are very different but but a kind of echo some of those earlier interactions so it sets up a lot of stuff and it gets a lot of nuts and bolts mechanical things done even if it isn't exactly mm. clear that's what's going on because because it, it's not, uh, it doesn't feel like it's that type of movie. But but that's the skill of it. Because I think where um, 
we're kind of want of a better word because this doesn't really mean anything as a term but we're kind of art house <laughs> movies uh kind of can lose it or at least can lose me is when they they don't care about the fundamentals at all right and then yeah. and so and you get the impression that the people making it couldn't make a kind of quote-unquote conventional film or a Hollywood yeah. system film, right? Because in yeah. order to really break something down and um, throw the rules away and, and subvert the rules, I think you need to show that you have a basing in them or that you understand them. You need to know what you're doing and, and then subvert yeah. it with intention. And I think that yeah. watching Paul Tom Sanson films, this guy, if he wanted, if he could wanted to go and be a hired gun and make a standard movie, I mean, he would... Uh, he would be able to do that. There's no doubt, right? Whereas mm. I don't know if, uh, you know, and okay, he wouldn't want to, but I don't think Bellatar would would be able to to put the Avengers together. Do you know what I mean? Whereas yeah. I feel like Paul as Thomas amazing Anderson as that would be, like <laughs> yeah. I would happily watch a seven-hour black and white Avengers where but, it's just Thor sort of throwing his yeah. hammer up and down for like forty-five. But minutes. I think what we yeah, get, that'd be incredible. But I think what we get with the Masters, we do get this twenty-minute, uh, this this first twenty minutes, we do see how how a kind of uh, sophisticated an engine he has put together under the hood you know how yes. how this thing yeah. is mechanically very sound and how it has obviously gone through rigorous draft after draft it's not it's not one of those kind of um kind of self sort of um self-aggrandizing kind of vanity project things where you feel you know it's not like a gaspar no film or something and he's just kind of mm. gone out there and just shot a load of self-indulgent trash for 20 minutes uh, yeah. uh you know what i mean <laughs> Like there is no, there is I, a narrative here, and yeah. that's what hangs think, together, and that's why yeah. all of the um, that other stuff that's so enjoyable, the real meat of it, the 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 kind of bravura filmmaking, the technique of the whole thing, that's what gives mm. it something. That's what kind of makes it good because it is actually on something of value as well on a narrative level, you know? Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I think knowing his sort of outlook quite well and just how he approaches filmmaking is. Um, he just really loves all kinds of films and he loves the, you know, he's, he's obviously, I think generally considered an art house type, like he, it's funny, he does sort of cross that bridge a little bit that he is sort of very highly respected, very critically well regarded, but, um, people do tend to mostly go and see his films. He doesn't make mega money, but he is just well regarded all round. I can't, I struggle to think of any other filmmaker who, the sort of cinephile audience, i.e. our circle of friends, or and the sort of general critical community can all rally behind, as unified as they do him. And I think that's because he just has a real love for what makes films entertaining, but also what makes them really kind of engaging. So I think from a writing perspective, I would imagine he pretty, probably sticks quite close to sort of the rules, if you like. Um, and puts down a, a decent story that can be followed and, uh, you know, sort of characters you can get behind. I think when he comes to actually make the film is when he really starts to play with these things, you know, and he allows actors to improvise and bring things to the table and then works with that. I think the one thing I've noticed from listening to him talk about films, filmmaking his filmmaking process is he's really really adaptable like if something isn't working he's very happy to kind of switch it up and uh just go where it kind of takes him um which is a real credit to his strength i'm gonna say something mildly controversial now but it's kind of just occurred to me is that i i kind of feel like in most cases that plot can be quite overrated when you're looking at films 
generally. Like, I think the idea of a plot is it's... The way I see it is it's kind of like a shelf which you put these kind of key moments on, you know, like yeah. you, you, it has to be sturdy and it has to be strong. Otherwise, it, it just all falls apart and it's not a usable shelf. But the shelf in itself, I think, is like, you know, people put a lot, stress a lot on, you know, kind of plot as being the key thing that makes films kind of turn. Um, and so I really, you know, it sort of does my head in a bit when I hear people saying, you know, because I think that was a criticism that was leveled against this film a lot is that it's fairly plotless and that is somehow a drawback. Um, but I think in this case is he understands that the plot is essentially just what you're sitting your ideas on top of. And if it's strong enough, then you can put as many ideas on it or as few ideas as you want. And um, I think there's a he has a real I think it takes a special kind of confidence to do away with like not really put a focus on plot to then make this kind of film work you know yeah i, I can't remember where i started now i've started talking and i don't remember where i was <laughs> no I, to I agree I, yeah. I, I agree i mean plot is not for me like the most interesting thing about movies at all and and i'm one of yeah. those people where when people ask me what a film's about i tend to want to start talking about the kind of the themes and not literally yeah. well it's about this guy who needs to go into a bank in 24 hours or you know whatever yeah i think i think that stuff is the less interesting stuff which is why we have such a thing in filmmaking as you know the term MacGuffin right because we understand that on some level we need a kind of narrative engine that takes the characters from point a to point b but that that engine itself doesn't actually matter we need we need enough kind of suspension of disbelief around it that we can understand well well of course captain america needs to go over there because that guy's got the big shiny stone that does all the stuff yeah but we don't actually need to know what the how the stuff works or where the big shiny stone comes from that's not interesting yeah you know it's Mm. it's literally the it's there as as the MacGuffin and it's there to to move the characters to the next scene and to get them in place and i think that's yeah. true with the master it's true with paul thomas Anderson's films in general is they are mm. they are plot light or at least the plot is not the foreground the plot is not what's essential but i think what's yeah. interesting about how tightly structured the first 20 minutes of the master is is how mm. they are deceptively um they're deceptively sort of well structured you know they they, yeah. they are that they they're made by somebody who understands how to structure and pace a movie. They haven't just kind yeah. of gone. It's not a you know a kind of self indulgent. Just he he just filmed any old shit, edited edited it together in the way that it was coolest to the music that he selected. Yeah, and that that's the first twenty minutes. You know, I mean it's it's it has a clear structure, and the movie I think continues in that vein, even if it doesn't you know end in you know he completes the bank heist (laughs) yeah (laughs) absolutely yeah um and i i actually i remember seeing it for the first time with a group of people and the generally their feelings towards it were of the it they felt to them like it didn't know what it was doing um like that deception essentially became what that that was really their initial impression was that it was kind of didn't have a grasp on where it was going and didn't move very well and was very kind of just felt very sort of plotless and i i really feel like it's especially with his films like it's worth revisiting because you just start uncovering these things and like watching those first 20 minutes now in order to do this podcast there's still stuff that i can kind of Mm -hmm. uncover you know and it takes a special kind of confidence 
uh, for a filmmaker to actually do that and pull that off. Um, like it's incredibly rare, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, mm. I'm, I'm getting into the kind of straight observations period now, where I just have some things yeah. I noticed that I want to mention. Yeah, absolutely. I can't really segue swiftly from what you just like smoothly from what you. Just no, said. no, no. Let's let's go. For um, it. I think that was a nice yeah. summary of what I've been going over. <laughs> the uh, I I noticed. I don't know if, if um did you pick up on the fact that during the transition from military life to the really awesome um photography montage bit mm. uh the music in the background is uh get thee behind me satan which yes. uh, i think's fantastic it's sort of uh, and i think it supports um <laughs> if i may say i think it supports my read of of uh, what's going on with that woman and stuff because <laughs> it's a sort of yeah. it's a sort of thing of like hey he's put it all behind him all those demons and things he's getting over it he's in civilian life he's taking these photos yeah. of these ideal 1950s people and oh he's met a girl and he's sending it off with her and they're going to go on a date and in the way that comes collapsing down and the way that kind of satan is not behind him right and I, yeah. I think that 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 musical choice um, could seem in another film or another way, kind of on the nose, but it, yeah. it somehow in that in that same light touch, very deft way that the rest of the film is mm. put together, it, it doesn't really strike you as a uh, a kind of hammer blow to you know. Of, of the point no, of yeah, making. absolutely not. Um, it's what the phrase "Get thee behind me, Satan." It's the saying. It means it, what does it mean? Because it's I think it's just like whenever people are presented with temptation it's like get thee behind me satan it's like put it get it away from me kind of thing i is think that it's right, i i, I read it up? as um sort of behind me as in in the past maybe like get thee behind yeah. me you know you're you're in the back now i'm moving forward without you in my yeah. life satan. i might have to look it Found up the Lord. It, it definitely is an interesting yeah. um like the music again very specifically chosen um songs which do tie into the themes of the film like the ending song i think is called changing partners and it's the song's just about like dancing in a dance hall and like dancing away from the person you want to be dancing with but uh like taken metaphorically that's literally what the film is about so it's an amazing bit of music choice yeah yeah very good um yeah. any any stray observations from your side um i kind of cover most of them Initially, like, uh, the things that struck me that it doesn't show any of the war, which I think is really, like, a really strong choice. Um, the very the, obviously, yeah. uh, the, the, there is a sort of semi-bookend with one of the very first shots of the film being him lying down with a sand woman, which is the shot that it ends with. And this is kind of weird, um, you know, circular kind of narrative thing going on which i always love just from a purely i don't know aesthetic thing just i love it when there's a kind of bookend thing like a film ends uh as it began it, i mean that really feels like a mark of someone who knows what they're doing who can see the overall sort of idea yeah um and then yeah just that there was a re i really felt like the whole kind of model in the um department store was just felt very much like a fantasy like it just felt like really it felt too good to be true for him in his state at that point. That's not to say I mean, that it is. Yeah, but, um, that's that's still. I think that reading. I think that reading is still valid because the thing is, is that um, it it being too good to be true in that moment. I think I think works with both interpretations because it mm. it, it definitely is too good to be true because it doesn't last. It all breaks down, you know, and mm. like immediately. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, other than that, it's that I think that's mostly it. I, uh, it's funny. I thought yeah. there would be uh, 
there'd be more stuff. But again, it's just the light touches with all of his films. Is it's it's he knows uh, the power of restraint, uh, which his contemporary Mr. Nolan, who does get quite a beating on our podcast, I must he say. Does, I mean, yeah. he's a real easy target <laughs> just because he's you know popular, but uh, generally, I mean, the thing you were saying before about MacGuffins is Nolan loves MacGuffins and he loves talking about MacGuffins it's... and he loves talking about like the story elements and god isn't this brilliant like ah, oh, going in dreams and this is how it works and i thought all about this and you know it's like he really lays it on thick but this is this is the thing uh that that um nolan is an expert technician and he does yeah. understand the mechanics of making a movie but what you get mm. is an extremely polished movie with extremely polished mechanics and extremely polished plot you know and, and mm. decent performances and you get you get a very a very fine thing nolan's movies are very finely made um mm. but this is the thing i think with pta that we we're just speaking about or, or i was trying to say was just that i feel like he he knows those fundamentals too you know and mm. then he goes off piste and can kind of um have that lightness of touch and and, and choose to, yeah. to focus maybe more character wise i mean there's also another thing which is nolan's making films generally for a more broad audience which you know yes uh, if true. that was the target audience for uh for for paul tom sanson's films he would he'd probably approach them in a different way as well he'd probably but, have to refine it yeah and, and yeah but but i, I would say um uh, just just a, a stray a stray thought based on what you were saying about the kicking we give nolan on this on this, uh, on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. do you think he is he's He's two thousand. He's the two thousand ten sort of era Quentin Tarantino, like where where the reason we kind of maybe get a bit snobby about him is because when you meet someone in a pub and they say what are you into and you go oh I like films they go oh I love mm. Christopher Nolan <laughs> and then yeah. you kind of reflexively a sort of like oh I like better films than that <laughs> in the yeah. same way that yeah. in the same way that ten or twenty years ago it was Tarantino. Oh, I love Yeah, Pulp well, Fiction. I feel more now it's Tarantino, for me at least. Yeah. Because I grew up and, like, growing up I was a big, really into Tarantino. Like, those, uh, that was sort of Kill Bill era backwards I would work through, and I was yeah. really, really into that, and it was real kind of, like, I really thought it was amazing what it did. Nowadays, I, you know, whenever I hear people talking about it, I just kind of do that little wince where I'm like, oh, God. Like, I still, I, I, know, I know you have absolutely no time for his films. No, no, that's not I true. Still, that's not true. Right. Is it not? No, no, no. That's not true at all. Oh, okay, like, right. I'm going to be a complete. Unring this bell. I'm going to be a yeah. complete hipster cliche and say Jackie Brown is a very good film. <laughs> but it is. It's an amazing it is, film. Yeah. Like you're not wrong. Yeah. Like cliches aside, I watched it recently and it's absolutely amazing. Like yeah. it's um, pretty incredible. But um, those first three, I still really, really love. Um, Nolan's a bit different though because he does. He he is a slave to his impulses in certain respects but he does do like the thing is tarantino is has always been like a little bit out of touch with reality um and nolan's just too in touch with reality it's a weird kind yeah of distinction. I, I, I wasn't um, really saying that they go for the same anything really similar yeah to, sure. to each other in, in terms of the themes or the films they make but just yeah. the, and this is i'm saying i'm self-aware this is super snobby so if you're listening and you just think what a dick you're completely right Okay. But yeah. My, well, my it's an important this, conversation to have, I think, <laughs> but, just but I think, generally. But I think my, the thing I'm getting for is that is that both of them, their their films are completely fine. They're, they're generally good films from both yeah. of them across their filmography. With I would say the exception of more recent Tarantino, but generally they've made good movies. 
Um, mm. My varied feelings across their various filmographies aside, they generally make decent level of film. Yeah. But it's the fact yeah, that yeah, yeah. they tend to be the favourite filmmaker of people who uh, like film more than, I don't know, the masses, for whatever better word, right. but maybe aren't as into film as they think they are. <laughs> Sure, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm not. I'm yeah, not saying yeah, yeah. it's wrong to like Christopher Nolan. I'm. I'm. I'm specifically thinking of people who would tell me he's their favorite director. That's what I'm yeah, thinking. Yeah. No. Of. I. No. It's exactly that because it does give the impression of kind of um you know a shallow a engagement refined, with movie. a refined taste in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I. Well. My. My personal answer to that question is I still have that feeling towards Tarantino when people bring him up as kind of a benchmark I'm like his golden era is way way behind him like either way you look at it like uh, I mean you know his new film may surprise me I still hope it does like I'm still hoping that he'll kind of bring it back in some way um whereas with Nolan being more up to date there's still I don't know there's still like I thought Dunkirk was really strong actually and really um back rode back on a lot of criticisms I've had of his films um so i still feel like with nolan there's a chance for it to to, for that kind of um fandom i guess to be somewhat justified um all in all though pt will never get the love that um he does although i think that's fine he'll never be main he'll never be mainstream you know he'll never be like (laughs) out there he'll never be everyone's favorite well you know when Um, he he is is when we can say he's not as good as he used to be you know yes we can start slagging him off and nolan's off the hook just two more two more just complete random observations about the first 20 minutes of the uh, of the master um firstly the only thing that i think is dated now and has not aged really well at all is that it opens with the Weinstein company <laughs> logo. Oh god, <gotcha>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I thought like, oh dear, okay, well that's that's not gonna go down well going forward. No. It's not yeah. the right associations to begin your movie with. Uh, wow, a lot of films are gonna yeah, have that. Yeah, a lot problem, of films are gonna right? have that issue. Uh yeah. and then um I mean then the other thing was and and you I want to hear your view on this because you are sure. more like I. I obviously appreciate the technical aspect of, of filmmaking, but I don't. I don't really have the same practical, really experience that you do. Yeah. Um. And I'm interested. There's. Um. Paul Thomas Anderson's films are generally quite stylistically of a piece. You know, they don't generally yeah. suddenly. You know, he doesn't do like a Danny Boyle, and then suddenly it's like CGI going down a straw into like uh, James yeah. Franco's mouth or whatever. Right? It doesn't sort of just <laughs> you know the camera racing all over the place. It's generally of a particular piece of a particular style. There mm. is one shot in the entire film, unless there's one later in the film I have not can't remember, but re-watching the first 20 minutes, there seems to be just one shot that stands out where he's bashing the coconut and it was like a fisheye lens? Yes. Why? Like a really, really wide lens. Like, why? Um, like, because cause it doesn't... It's not stylistically consistent with anything else in the rest of the movie or anything else Paul Thomas Anderson has ever made. And it really stood yeah. out to me watching it this time through. And I'm just really curious in your view why that was there. Because it did seem very jarring to me on a close right. watch. Obviously, like I've watched it several times before and it completely passed me by. But on a really yeah. close repeat watch of the first 20 minutes, it stood out. Yeah, that's interesting. That shot, I remember being in the very first trailer for that film. And so seeing it then, it passed me by basically from the first viewing of the film entirely, like up until now. So I haven't thought about it since then. But you're right, it is a weird choice. of. Uh, but there are kind of moments, like one that just occurred to me is when... Um, uh, 
they're Paul Dano and Daniel Day-Lewis are having the fight in the bowling alley at the end of their okay. blood and he throws um, a bowling ball and it hits a bucket of water which soaks the lens and the lens is just right. left like soaked for the rest of the thing I think like the difference between Paul Thomas Anderson and say someone like Danny Boyle or even someone like David Fincher who deliberately does like cameras through tiny yeah. things just because he can or like yeah yeah exactly um, like the famous I one think- in Panic Room where yeah, kind of where it goes through the, the coffee yeah, handle, yeah. yeah. Which is like, what are you thinking, mate? Um, but that I think the difference is is that those filmmakers um, preemptively make conscious decisions to do these things, whereas I think Paul Thomas Anderson, he like the the bucket of water thing, obviously just happened, and I think he really loves the naturalism of that, and he's really out to capture like kind of organic moments that wouldn't you can't necessarily plan so when those happen he sort of keeps them in the I the think, only I technical, think that's true I mean, but there's no way that he accidentally yeah. left that lens on no no no, no. <laughs> yeah that's 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 the interesting thing because he would have deliberately done that yeah the only like thing i technical thing i can think is obviously with a fisheye lens you'd obviously if you want to do an establishing shot but have someone in the foreground that would be really good for that. Also, he's shooting on a really, really wide format. So if you wanted to get a shot as wide as that, you would need quite a ridiculous lens. So those are the only reasons I okay. could think he would consciously choose to do that and then not um, correct it in post-production. Yeah. I kind of like the shot, though. I mean, I agree no, with you. It looks it. weird. It, like, stands out. But, um, yeah, it's yeah, weird because it just... he doesn't tend towards, like, fancy... Well, it's like... it's it's Well, it's not like this actually really at all but i've started to finish <laughs> right it's, it's it's not like this because paul tom sanderson's film is very very good and this is a bad association to make but yeah. it's like in attack of the clones <laughs> when um you suddenly get that real stylistic um disconnect where george lucas across all of the star wars films he directed for better or worse there's a very consistent visual language to star wars there's a very sort mm. of kurosawa and 1950s serial and, and whatever sort of inf- kind of inflected cinema language that the shots and everything are, are very recognizably star wars very recognizably lucas i think the way they're sort of um composed for much mm. of it and then attack of the clones towards the end of the film when he really seems to have just given up on life um there's loads of cgi battle bits that are literally yeah. directed by the special effects team like yeah. there's that bit where it goes first person and like there's a clone troopers first person view shooting at insect dudes through the um, sandstorm yeah or whatever and i remember watching that the first time in the cinema just being like star wars has literally never never had a shot like this in it before why is it yeah. starting now at like the yeah. in the last 20 minutes or whatever of the like uh, fifth film that's come out you know it was so yeah. fucking weird so yeah that's, that's that's not exactly what's just happened in the master <laughs> but no but uh, it's but the first yeah, thing no, my mind is that kind of like i don't i don't have any problem if your choice is that this film is going to have all these kind of cinema verite uh, stormtrooper yeah. first person shooter bits but yeah. why is it suddenly doing it why are there suddenly shaky cam bits at the end of attack of the clones yeah. you know why 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 is the film no longer on a tripod for this scene you know it mm. that's very odd to me yeah no i i i'm totally with you there like i'm a real purist when it comes to a group of things 
being of a whole. So like the Dark Knight trilogy, for example, just like there's not one moment where like Zippy the Clown comes out and starts like wisecracking to Batman and like, you know, it doesn't go Joel Schumacher in the last third, you know, it doesn't suddenly like start putting neon everywhere like um i mean it, it, is, it does still totally I, shit the bed in the last entry but I, yeah totally it, it does but it does it in a way in, that is totally consistent way, yeah. with the rest of the film yeah, yeah. yes yeah i guess stylistically that's what i'm saying yeah yeah that fisheye lens who knows you know that's just one of those um i i doubt that i really feel like paul the one of the reasons i love pta so much is because his just mastery of restraint yeah. in any regard is just he's able to like um pull together elements without making a big deal at least since punch drunk love like there is quite a lot of um i, I wouldn't say showboating but like fun being had with sort of long takes and things like that in boogie nights and magnolia mm. um at least in his sort of golden age punch drunk love onwards that has never really been the case so um yeah who knows? It's like one of just one of those things. Yeah. Um, can't think of a. F- yeah, can't think of any. It's good like that. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> makes sense. It makes sense. It was just. It, it was just sense. one tiny. Um, I don't even know if it qualifies as a pet peeve. I don't even know if I go so far as to have been peeved by it. But it stood out. <laughs> it stood out on a on a rewatch. It's a question mark. Yeah, it's a it's question a, like, mark. Why? I would like to ask why him about it. I would like to, and he yeah. probably does have an answer. You know, I'm sure that's the I'm kind of sure thing. He does, is he yeah. would, I'm sure he would remember that shot, and there would be a, a, a little anecdote about why that day that happened. Uh, yeah, he probably yeah. lost all the other lenses. That's probably all it is. <laughs> Shit, I like I find a lot of these times, yeah. like like you're saying, you know, Attack of the Clones being directed by the VisFX department. That's literally just like this was the time uh, George Lucas decided arbitrarily or not to shoot on digital for the first time and realize he could leave like a bulk of the filmmaking to just the visifex because he notoriously hates directing like he's not in great health a lot of the time because he has diabetes and he says it's a real like physically very stressful on him directing a film so he clearly doesn't enjoy it and there is a kind of i mean it's it's not too far to say there's quite an apathetical approach to directing like he's not mm. a sort of energetic director and you can see that in the films like like you say like a whole bulk of it just being visual effects so you know there's always these kind of weird just practical reasons yeah. for why stuff ends up happening i in think films. i see it really broke my heart though attack of the clones when because i i remember watching and this 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 podcast has now well and truly just gone off piece but anyway <laughs> yeah like, the, we've jumped the yeah, shark we've really real. jumped it now but there's a bit yeah. on the dvd making of for attack of the clones where um, yeah. he's talking to the effects people it's like behind the scenes footage of him chatting to them and they're showing him the you know the animatics where yeah. it's yeah that early stage animation and they're showing him that stuff for those battles and they show him the shaky cam stuff and the first person stuff they show him all of yeah. that crap and he's literally standing there next to them being shown the scenes that are the animatics version of exactly what we later see in the final film yeah and he's going oh yeah yeah that looks good you know he just doesn't <laughs> and it's just like oh shit this stuff was all just done by animators he didn't have really too much other than nodding his approval and it's kind of heartbreaking because it's like you say what you like about him and say what you like about those movies but you know like uh, i would go to bat to say phantom menace has a consistent visual style no absolutely (laughs) yeah like uh but anyway it's uh yeah it's it's an odd one 
Maybe this is uh, um, this is something I'll I'll uh, try and notice from from now on in all films. Just the weird the weird one shot that is not like any other in the whole movie. And uh, I guarantee, like forty um, percent of the time, it's a self indulgent uh, attempt at separating yourself from yourself, like an artist trying to do something outside the box. Sixty okay. percent of the time, it's like a practical thing, like they can't do thing a certain way, so they have to do it, or they forget to do it, and they end up leaving something in. Like I think it's forty. I, money on that. I think it's forty percent, forty percent, and then there's the twenty percent you didn't account for, which is the more which Chris Columbus that? version, uh, where where it sort of just didn't give a shit. Wow, Chris! Chris is in our podcast. Really, get the shit kicked out of them, like quite mercilessly. At any point, we could just drudge up a Chris and really give him, give it for him. Well, who are yeah. other famous directing Chris's? There's a Chris Chris um, Whites. Chris Whites. Does yeah. he have anything so that we would do this? With? The Golden Compass. The Golden Compass. Guys, you could absolutely Jeez. tear the shit out of that film. Um, other famous directing Chris's. I'm gonna make a list for next time. <laughs> Anyway, ironically, my middle name is Christopher, so this really puts me on edge. <laughs> Although it's you know, yeah, only my middle name. Really um, there was one thing I really want to ask you, yeah. master related. Where have it? So I mean, obviously you didn't watch the whole film, but from just w- the amount of times you've seen it, where would you rank it on your PT kind I, of? Um, I agree completely with what you said earlier, which is that it improves in your view every time you see it. Because mm. I was watching the first 20 minutes over and over again and thinking, fuck me, this film's good. And then, yeah. and then during one of the times I left it playing and I got like an hour in and I was just sitting there mm. watching it. And I was like, no shit, I need to go back and watch the first 20 minutes again. Cause it's so yeah. absorbing. You know, it's so yeah. like um, it just really, really grabs you and, and doesn't really let go. I think if you if you can if you're pulled in by the characters and and everything, which you know, obviously mm. people who are who maybe in, into a more uh, as we said earlier, a plot based sort of traditional narrative yeah. might not find. But I've, I certainly find it really absorbing. But I, but I think the thing is with that is um, that that's probably the case for all of Paul Thomas Anderson's kind of punch drunk love onwards work. Like I think mm. if I put um, there will be blood on right now. I could probably convince myself quite easily that's my favourite. Yes. You know, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think with Punch Drunk Love, it's partly that that's the one that really made me think, Jesus, this guy's a genius. And that yeah. was the first one where where I really had that strong reaction to it. Yeah. It's uh, um, and also definitely. it just resonates with me personally because it's in my reading of it anyway. And maybe maybe he has a completely different intention or a completely different reading. But in my reading of it anyway, there's a lot of stuff with the Adam Sandler character that seems to speak very closely to uh, feelings of like social anxiety and alienation yeah. and, and kind of um, just, a, just a lot of stuff psychologically that character goes through in that film that I think the film portrays really well, uh, better than yes. most other films or all other films I've ever seen have ever done. And that, that kind yeah. of hits me in a place where, where that's very personal to me. And then yeah. um, the subsequent films, I mean, I think there's arguments to be made for There'll Be Blood and The Master being an improvement on Punch Drunk Love and being the next step on in that evolution. Mm. But I think for me, that's my heart kind of goes back to that one. You know what I mean? It's like, I yeah. don't think Bottle Rocket, Definitely. I don't think Bottle Rocket is technically Wes Anderson's best film. I think personally, technically as a filmmaker, I think Wes Anderson is getting better as he goes on. And I think his last couple sure. have been his strongest films. But Bottle Rocket for me is the film that is like my favorite in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no to i totally in. get that yeah absolutely um i think and i don't want to get to alex jones on you know about a filmmaker <laughs> but like there is i i do feel like that um 
he Paul Thomas Anderson he understands that like you know like the things the themes of a film if you like there's something very dehumanizing to make a film about them and really explicitly um sort of show that that's what a character is going through like you can say you could quite easily make an argument for uh you know adam sandler's character in that film having kind of being on the spectrum or like you say social anxiety or any of these things Mm. uh you could say um in there'll be blood that he is you know could have like a sort of megalomaniacal god complex all these kind of things you could say in the master that there's a slightly kind of bipolar uh you know mental i mean there's fairly explicitly like a mental defect going on but like i think he recognizes that uh drawing very much on the clinical aspects of those things is very dehumanizing to those experiences and by you know removing that kind of like explicit telling of those stories he rehumanizes those kind of conditions which ultimately for the most part sort of you know oil tycoon extremes aside are very human character yeah. traits and he recognizes that and he he focuses on those as opposed to like well this person belongs in this sector of society and you know this i'm going to talk about them like i would make a case that something like punch drunk love is actually incredibly comforting for people who uh, go through the experiences that uh adam sandler's character goes through and it would be dehumanizing and very removed from reality to have scenes where he's like being kind of therapized or studied and diagnosed mm-hmm. or i mean that's a bit of a reach and you know borderline conspiracy theory, but <laughs> i always felt that that's like kind of you know it's he he understands that you know these things are human traits and you know we try and work around them and to some extent pretend that they don't happen but you know we all have them to some one extent i think that's i think that is similar to the kind of black comedy thing i was saying earlier of 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 comedy just emerging from characters and moments i think that's another unifying thing among the films i'm drawn to uh personally and again i'd mention like the coen brothers in this but but a lot of other filmmakers is where they're they do a lot of characters where um people might be turned off and say i don't like these people well i'm watching this film about an asshole um and it's because they find the humanity in everyone you know they they kind of Mm. will do a movie you know like like the coen brothers i remember always criticized for barton fink because he's such a you know an asshole in that movie but uh and it's it's similar i suppose with you know daniel day lewis in there'll be blood or or lots you know i mean that guy actually actually murders people and and uh and and you know abuses basically that that child uh to 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 further his own career so it's it's there's a lot of very dark things that go on there but he finds a humanity in all of his characters and i think that's very important and and interesting one one thing i'll i'll uh maybe end on that i'm interested in you've listened to i think a lot more interviews with Paul Thompson than mm. I have. I've, I've only heard a few. I tend these yeah. days for whatever reason just not really to engage with that side of things. So I don't I don't sure. really know too much about him personally or whatever. From the few interviews yeah. I've heard, um he he kind of seems maybe self-deprecating is too strong, but he definitely gives the impression in his interviews that things are quite kind of um, by the seat of the pants, kind of just just fly by night shooting there. Oh, some crazy thing happened. That's in the movie. Let's workshop this thing on set. Like very yeah. loose with what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure whether that's um, a kind of 
uh, faux humility because he doesn't want to blow his own trumpet, or whether your read on that is that it's actually true. You you think that's? You, do you take him at his word that that's sort of the process, or or is this somebody uh, who? Because when I hear it, I think you're a genius and you don't want to alienate us by uh, by <laughs> by actually saying yeah. actually saying the extreme sort of um, work and skill that's gone onto this. You'd rather just I dash think... it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that there's um it is that to an extent, but I think he just understands in the same way that anyone that I have a lot of respect for that that side of things being a genius whatever it just isn't really important to him, you know, it's about like just it's about making the film, you know, it's just about yeah. making the film as good as it can be sort of thing. I think he is just like he there's that whole thing they say about Terence Malick is that he wants to build a house but he doesn't want to sell a house and building a house and selling a house are two different things so why should making a film and selling yourself and the film be the same thing and I think PT's quite similar although he doesn't completely shy away from like doing interviews I think yeah. he is just like um he he just loves he just loves what he does yeah. and that's all he needs you know he doesn't need gratification from anyone else he doesn't need people telling him he's genius yeah. he just loves movies yeah. and loves making that them. is I think that is probably... that is a nice sentiment a nice quote but ultimately people yeah. need to buy a house people need houses to live in and nobody that's needs true. tree of life you have to sell, you have to <laughs> sell it I like that you know that film's fine but what I'm saying is is, yeah. is you have to have I think to some extent that commercial eye on who is this audience for when you're spending X amount of money because oh, you know yeah, you definitely. can't like that the film isn't like well I've just made this whatever and now it's up to you to sell it to people because you know that's not going to work with film yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, one, yeah. no one well, fundamentally needs the house <laughs> like the house well, will find a buyer because someone needs yeah. to live there but a film that yeah. no one wants to see good luck yeah well uh to counter that the criterion collection have just announced an extended cut of the tree of life and i'm wet in my pants yeah, yeah that, but that out. wasn't like, that, that's a house i want to leave yeah, it, yeah live in, that absolutely. was not tree of life was was not singled out as an example of a bad film no one wants to see oh okay not right, at all. sorry tree of life's fine i, like, I thought you meant i like tree of I th- life yeah i'm saying no okay, one right. I, I like terence malick this is this is not an attack on Terrence Malick. All the film. Oh, I life. thought you meant you were saying that no one wanted to live in his house. <laughs> no, as, no, I'm saying yeah, that. Right. Okay, that sorry, need, I misread that. that. A pers- the, 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 the thing is, it's an interesting kind of and a nice uh, a nice kind of way of putting it with the the house yeah. metaphor. But it doesn't. It breaks mm. down because fundamentally, a house is a commodity that people require. Whereas movies yeah. are things that no one no one needs. Jurassic Park. No one needs Star Wars. You know right. What I mean? Yeah. Tree of Life. No one needs it. it it's it, it's yeah. You can't, okay, you can't sure, just yeah. dash. Or you can't just make it and then go. Okay. Well, now it's up to the studio to sell it to people. You with film, they're so expensive and they're a luxury thing and they're not needed by anybody. So they yeah. they, 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 they that sold, stuff yeah. has to be worked into the DNA of the thing being made. You know, you can't just. Yeah. Fart into a, a microphone for two hours with a black screen and expect it to get wide. You can't then go to the studio. What's your job to sell it? I just made the yeah, house. You sure. you sell the house. <laughs> it's just a very <laughs> different game. <laughs> I think the difference, I guess, is like um, you know the best filmmakers. I think understand why a film is worth people's time. Yeah. Like why why the in their luxury time their film is worth like why you know I think for the best filmmakers they make films for other people and the worst ones who act like they're the best 
Nicholas Winding Refn looking in your direction <laughs> think that uh, it's worth their time because they're brilliant and anything they do is brilliant. That's, I think, the worst trait in any filmmaker. Like, I take, you know, uh, I don't know, like, Ocean's 8 over, like, Only God Forgives again any day because I know that the filmmakers behind it, they're at least, they at least know who it's for and who's, you know, what kind of time it's going to occupy in their sort of luxury time yeah. and what that's going to mean, as opposed to someone who just thinks everything they do is brilliant and that that needs verifying and that it doesn't matter where it goes yeah. and whatever. But I think I think um, the thing is with movies, to come to the commercial, the art versus commerce side, is that mm. you can make any self-indulgent bollocks you want to make. And it might even be great. I mean, mm. I don't. it doesn't even be bollocks. You can make a, a movie that's really got a really niche audience that's awesome. But... That has to scale with the budget of that movie, right? Like, like yes, Nicholas absolutely. Winding Refn pulls an audience for a film like A Driver and Only God Forgives, but it's an audience yeah. that is only so big. So the budget needs to reflect that. If he decided it's yeah. going to be a 10-hour opus with George Clooney and special effects all over the place, but it's still only yeah. for his audience then that yeah. won't work and that that's the yes. that's the the equation that has to be drawn there when it comes to the kind of building of this house you know like i think that yes, i think sure. the filmmaker building the house uh they can build whatever house they want but they need to understand you know but am i at least building this in an in an area sure. <laughs> that people yeah, are yeah. going to want to move but going into? back to your question about like uh whether pt is you yeah. know he thinks he's brilliant but he just plays it down to i mean I think just that that element of it, like he's not interested in. I think he genuinely he just wants to convey a love of film through the films that he makes, mm. and trusts that other people love film as much as he's. A, I think it comes from a very compassionate kind of yeah. thing, and that's why you know I love him because he loves me. You see, there we go. That's a beautiful. And all of us, he loves. Everybody. He does. He loves all his children. Uh, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> One one quick one, okay. and now this will be a quick one, just before we wrap up, because I feel like it's come to that time. Yeah. Um, I'm just really curious to know what you think either his funniest film is or the funniest moment in oh. any one of his films. Do you, do you have one uh, in mind to stall while I think of one? Uh, sure. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's... Uh, I mean, there's many, like, yeah. really funny bits there, but I have never laughed as much as one of those films as I've laughed at Phantom Thread. Like, okay. I thought that film... Again, the whole theory of like, you know, essentially that film is just a sort of a really drawn out at its heart. It's a, like a long episode of The Archers, you know, but you put that against like a really playful sense of humor. It's so crackingly funny. And you put Daniel Day-Lewis in the hot seat and have him, you know, sort of roll that out it's so there's bits in that film which really cracked me up like just i never thought buttering toast could be as funny yeah as i did i did laugh film. at him ordering the eggs which even though yeah even though yeah. in even though in the phantom thread it's more like a i'll have a piece of toast and a piece of egg yeah. or whatever in my mind yeah. is still i want two sausages <laughs> six yeah. rashes of bacon <laughs> yeah um that's it's just great it's i really think funny. uh in terms of things that that always always make me laugh, it's it's kind of um, uh, probably a bit of an obvious one and and been memed a lot, but it's the milkshake drinking. Uh, oh yeah, god, yeah. The I drink your milkshake. And he I mean. he's actually said he loved how funny that felt that yeah. scene came out, and that's like that's like the got to be the sort of that's the tail end of this like American epic yeah, about yeah. you know building the foundations of a society and he ends it with just like Daniel Lewis screaming about milkshakes and just so off the chain it's like yeah. it's brilliant it's so funny 
I also yeah, like uh, I like Philip Seymour Hoffman in um, in Punch Drunk Love when he keeps shouting at Adam Sandler, "Shut up!" And then at one point he's just like, yeah. "Shut, shut, 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 shut!" <laughs> just goes for yeah. a long time. <laughs> yeah. shut. Uh, he is. Uh, I yeah. feel like we can't talk about the master and talk about Paul Thomas Hansen without, men- even though he wasn't in really the first twenty minutes, without saying yeah. again, what a loss to the world, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, I I don't think I'll ever get yeah, over it. Yeah, me, me like, neither. Really get over me it. neither. Like it's real heartbreaking. Like I know it's it's sad when anyone dies, and it's sad. Like there are loads of Absolutely. actors and celebrities and things who pass away, and you're kind of I think, oh, that's that's a shame. But Philip Seymour Hoffman is one where. I am I am genuinely horrified that we don't get to see him do more films and see what yeah. he's done because there are some people and I'm not you know I'm not going to be a dick and single people out and say it doesn't matter that yeah. they're dead but there are some people where it's like <laughs> there are some people where it's like oh that's sad because he seemed like a nice guy and he was a decent actor but you can swap yeah. that particular person out of a movie and someone else to do the job and you're not really like you, the universe isn't necessarily um, I mean his mm. wife and family and whatever are missing him but the universe hasn't lost that great piece right. of art or that performance in many cases maybe Felicio Hoffman yeah. was such a genius in every one of those roles that he took on yeah. and really brought so much to it the intensity of it that I I feel like we really missed like whatever his next Paul Thomas Anderson movie was or whatever he was going to do I feel like we mm. we missed something yeah. amazing I feel like I, I feel sounded like callous moving... about other people but that's not really no, my point I totally get your point like <laughs> relatively speaking yeah. it is like because I really feel like he was moving into like his best time yeah. as an actor like he just I don't know there was he, um, like I'll, I'd watch him in anything I thought he was just he really owned any role and could just make it work even if it was in even like something like Charlie Wilson's yeah. War which isn't a great film yeah, um, should be better than it is but that that scene of him in it is just fantastic like he just yeah. makes that work and he just knows how to bring energy to character yeah. to any character I mean, he knows how to find the energy of that character exa- and... exactly I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up Charlie Wilson's War because yeah. that's one where like that movie and I like Aaron Sorkin in general mm. that movie I think is awful <laughs> but he, yeah. he's brilliant Absolutely. in it like he's incredible yeah. in that movie, and I think he's one mm. of those people that there's not many of them around. Um, I mean, there are others. He's not the only one, but there's not many of them who, whatever they're in, they elevate the bits they're in. They elevate the the yeah. thing with their presence. They're they're always fantastic in it, whatever crap it is. I mean, I you mm. know those those Hunger Games movies perfectly fine. I quite enjoyed the Hunger Games movies, but sure. he when he's on screen. There's an intensity to what he's doing. There's there's a, yeah. a weight to what he's doing, you know, and yeah. and you can parachute him into anything. If he turned up in one of the new Star Wars movies as some fucking God, yeah. random alien dude, and he was like a big bad boss man or something, you would yeah. just you would just buy it. He would just yeah, run the absolutely. scene completely. Is it controversial to say that this role in the Master is perhaps his best? Like you think he's oh, I th- great I think it's in his best. I think- uh, in uh, I mean, maybe even just in like PT films that he was in because I really love him in Magnolia because that's maybe one of the only films where he's not playing like a crazy psycho or a loser he's just like a normal dude like he's just one of the only films where his character is just like this normal kind of guy I, don't, I, I feel, I I really feel like, like he used to do that a lot like in earlier films like um uh obviously he's he's always got that bit of weirdness or maybe slight perversion to what he was doing like in boogie nights where he plays that guy who's really uh yeah really kind of odd and unsettling and it's the same mm. in happiness really isn't it that the, the sort of thing uh, yeah from him there um i guess brant in the big lebowski 
there's a lot of aff- oh, there's yeah. a lot of affectation to that role, and he's kind of quite kind yeah. of effete. But again, he's he's kind of just a guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, he could do it all. Like he really could do it all. I, I, I he really don't, could. I, yeah. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, I, I, I wish that we had a, um, uh, another film with him in, in, in the same way as you know, like Tom Hardy doing, um, uh, the one where he's pretending to be Welsh driving down the M5 or whatever it is. Oh, Lock. Lock. Like yeah. I would, I would love a one-man film that was just Philip Seymour Hoffman on camera for oh, God, an hour yeah, and twenty minutes, amazing. just, just, just monologuing, like a kind of Alan Bennett's yeah. talking head type thing. But it's just yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman. That God, that would just be amazing. Really, it would be yeah. all you need. It really stings when you hypothesize about the roles they could have done. You know, that's when it really stings. I think. You know, if yeah. someone's gone and there's a bulk of work behind them, you can sort of say, yeah, and how great they were and all this. But if you want them to do more and they're gone, yeah, that's when it really hurts. Yeah. Not to say that it didn't before, but just, you know, perspective-wise. Yeah, absolutely. It's fucking shit. I think, yeah, it, it is. And shit. I think what happens as well with artists in general, typically, not in every case, but typically, mm. um, people start doing less good work later on whether it's because of their ailing mm. powers you know physically or mentally or whether it's just because they stopped giving a shit or maybe or whether it's because the world's moved on and new stuff's going on mm. now and their they stuff's old and they're yeah. relevant but people stop doing the good shit um and he never i mean we never got to see that it's like that f- thing people always say like we never got to see like an old john lennon right he's always he's always frozen right. in time or james dean or whoever they're the people who mm. died young frozen at a particular point in time philip seymour hoffman died soon after doing like the master and as you say some other really fantastic mm. work uh and, and we never yeah he never got to be shit in anything you know <laughs> i know yeah <laughs> you know Man, anyway that was uh, anyway yeah yeah well thank you for sticking with us dear listener um yeah. i uh, yeah we, we hope that you found uh found value in our various digressions uh often I hope you'll be able to uh contribute to a master conversation at your next dinner party with a, a slight digression on attack of the clones. yeah please do please do please please yeah, bring please up please explain maybe controversially if you don't like the master maybe compare it unfavorably alongside attack of the clones and say look <laughs> i don't like the master it's just like attack of the clones right for this yeah. reason here's why. here's why yeah um maybe that's oh, a good well. clickbait article to uh to write oh god yeah i think that might be a good one anyway that's a good one for the twitter I think, yeah. yeah it is i think uh we should do it on april 1st because then you've always got that um you can uh, you can always just disavow you can it cop, out, yeah. cop out you don't stand easily, behind yeah. it um, yeah <laughs> yeah so next time i've i uh we've talked about the avengers uh haven't we that could be for, interesting for yes yeah. i also recently we, um... rewatched one of my absolute favorite movies of the last 20 whatever years city um children of men and i'm i oh, the yeah. first 20 minutes i was very aware of the first 20 minutes while watching that and i thought this would be very because there's so much world building cool. and stuff in that film i was like this would be yeah fucking great very so, very economic uh, in a good you way. know well, you, you got any thoughts or uh, anything i um, should do my only thought is like we haven't done a shite film in a while Ooh, and that could okay. be good we haven't done a crapper a real crapper. um yeah, yeah, just the pixels level crap. Yeah, I think I think um, pixels will be forgotten by the sands of time. So I think we need to right. pick a crap film that that stands adds to the sand. That, yeah, well, that's, yeah, that that actually people remember rather than one that came out like a oh, year okay. ago. Oh, okay, all right. You know, sure. like I feel like one that is kind of epically, you know, like memorably Terrible. bad, maybe. 
don't something know. like I, I mean how bad do we go do we go like uh epic movie bad is that the gauge of bad that we can visit or no. are we talking just something like i don't, I don't know, even, um, I don't know jupiter ascending oh, or... jupiter ascending that's a good shout <laughs> that yeah. is a good shout because this is the thing as well is that christopher columbus and and pixels is like we both sort of took a dump on it because it kind of deserved it yeah with um cloud atlas and jupiter ascending i feel like the intentions are so good and they mean so well mm. and they're trying so hard yeah. that it's a kind of um that i think there needs to be a measure of restraint <laughs> taken in the, <laughs> in the yeah. assault on those movies <laughs> yeah especially given that the filmmakers have made like you know some real like the matrix you yeah. know like a benchmark um, I would, you know, I, to then drop off the radar. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of Speed Racer. I feel like Speed Racer mm. is is just coming into the point where it's being critically reevaluated and people starting to come out of the woodwork yeah, saying that it's like so, an abandoned yeah. cult classic. Because because Speed Racer is genuinely very very good. I think. Right. Sure. I have never actually. I haven't seen it since it came out, and I don't remember it well. So I would have to revisit. That. It's an assault um, on and the you eyes. Know what? I'm just going to say it. I'm going to get it out in the open. I'll go to bat for Cloud Atlas. Not honourably, but I'll do it. You know, like, I'll step up for that film. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have a leg to stand on at all. But uh, I did, on the other podcast I do, we did Guilty Pleasures, and that was one of mine. Tell you what, and, you know, let's do Cloud Atlas next, and here's why. Because Cloud yeah. Atlas has so many different threads and characters and plot points. Ooh, I'm yeah. wondering how, on reflection, the first 20 minutes, how, how far it goes to try and put us in each world and give us to each character. And how much yeah. in that first 20 minutes we're able to really sink our teeth into, you know, in each each one of these realities, like like uh, who these people are, what they want to do. You know, I'm really curious mm. thinking about it, like what it does in those first 20 minutes. Because if you told me to write a film like Cloud Atlas with that concept, I have no <laughs> No idea yeah. what a good first 20 minutes is for that film sure yeah okay that's good that's a good very good uh, argument for doing it next. let's do that yeah. all right then well we'll Excellent. do cloud atlas okay. next you you listen you listen to us come to that programming decision <laughs> on podcast which uh you know yes, yeah which uh, is a novel approach to, spared no uh, expense that, exactly anyway thank yeah. you very much for uh, for listening dear listener uh i have been robert beams uh, I've been Tom Oliver. And thank you very much. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks very much. Yeah.